can share something, you know, just really deep and, and intimate, and they want to just express the, what's the, the cry of their heart. And just as they get ready to express it, the strange thing sometimes happens. The room goes absolutely quiet, and the person says it at the normal volume, and they're like, did everybody hear that? It's just weird how this kind of thing happens. There's something about a secret that we sometimes don't want to share, but grabs our attention. Psalm 25 says, the secret of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he will make them know his covenant. Mm. The secret of the Lord. I want to talk today about a secret. Uh, It's really kind of hard to call it a secret because it's all through God's word. But it's strange how so many people miss it. And even believers, actually, most importantly believers, miss the secret that I want to share with you today. The the really what, what you're called to and how God will work in your life when you obey him. You see, a lot of people live their lives out of alignment. A lot of Christians live their life out of alignment. They know Christ. They put their trust in Jesus. They're trusting in him and not themselves. They know he's Lord. They know he's Savior. They've believed. They've received. And then they start on the path of life, and they're out of alignment. And then they wonder why the absence in their life. Why no joy? Why no peace? Why no life? Jesus said, I have come so that we may have life and have life to the full. And Jesus said, I am, speaking of himself, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, I'm not a mechanic, but I have a car. And uh, I know what it is to drive a car out of alignment. I used to have this car, and it was weird. Uh, maybe this isn't an alignment issue. I, the, my way of fixing something is turning up the radio, you know, so that I can't hear it anymore. And then finally calling Aaron eventually. You know, so, so, but I had this one vehicle, and it was, like, it was fine from like 0 to 42 miles an hour. It was fine. But like the minute I hit 42, it was like all over the place. And then at like 63, it would stop. It would be smooth again. I'm like, what is the deal with this car? It's like possessed or something. So I had to drive always 65 miles an hour. That's why. When you saw me, that's why. It was the car's fault. Yeah, right, right. A car out of alignment is a problem. A life out of alignment is tragic. It's tragic. And I want us to see today what God's alignment is. I've got a book here. I've just started reading it. And um, I'm really intrigued by it. It's called C.S. Lewis and Sigmund Freud Debate God, Love, Sex, and the Meaning of Life, the Question of God. And so it's written by a professor at Harvard. And I don't know if he's a believer or not. I haven't got very far in the book. But here's what he does. He takes the, the, the letters and the teachings and the journals of Freud. And he takes them of Lewis. And he kind of compares them one with another. To see what, what is their view on life. Let me read to you just, just a couple lines out of here that will really illustrate what I'm trying to say. Okay? Freud, the author says, argues 
that the objection of those holding the spiritual worldview that is faith and is given by divine origin and revelation by the Spirit is impossible for him to comprehend. However, he says, the question must be raised whether there is a divine spirit and a revelation by it, and the matter must be decided. The question must be asked. Is there a divine creator or not? C.S. Lewis, then, in another journal article he wrote, he said this, Here is a door behind which, according to some people, the secret of the universe is waiting for you. Either it's true or it isn't. If it isn't, then what the door really conceals is simply the greatest fraud of human history on record. And he says, the question must be asked. Here we have arguably the, some of the, one of the, two of the greatest thinkers of the 20th century. And they say, you've got to ask the question. Is there a God? And if there is, he should run my life. And if there isn't, then let it go wherever it goes. Freud came to the conclusion that there was no God. And lived a life of desperation and loneliness to his death. Lewis understood something very different. How prideful of us. Now listen. How prideful of us. Mere peons compared to these guys, right? How prideful of us to think that we can ride the fence. That we can, that we can sort of straddle over the middle. And kind of be in Jesus and be in the world and live kind of both and have some sort of satisfaction, some sort of joy, some sort of peace. Freud and Lewis said, that's impossible. Either it's true and I will give my life to it and what Jesus calls me to, or it's a farce and I will reject it. So you heard my testimony. That was a huge part of my testimony. And I was in my early 20s. I was at an event where there was some powerful teaching from God's word. And I came home late on a Saturday night. And I said to my wife, we were living in Martinsburg then. I said to my wife, listen, I've made a, I've made a big decision this weekend. She was farther along for me than me spiritually at that time in our life. And I know she was excited to hear what God had done in my heart And I said this, either this stuff is for real and I'm going to follow Jesus or I want nothing to do with it. I'm tired of riding the fence. We need to have the same mentality. Listen just to this this concept throughout the Bible, just, just briefly, okay? Elijah. Remember Elijah? There on Mount Horeb, he says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Freud and Lewis, the same thing. Jesus, Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other. He'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. James chapter 1, verse 8. James writes, don't be a double-minded man. Unstable in all your ways. 
you a follower of Jesus? Good. Remember the great commandment, the great commission. I think I got these for the screen, on the screen for you somewhere. Um, put those up there for me, please. There it is. Okay, yeah. We're about pointing others to Jesus Christ and his word. That's what, our, that's what our motto is as a church. That's what we do. So we try to do every week we come together, point to Jesus. We understand that God gave us, Jesus gave us two very significant greatest commandments. Love God, love others. And gave us a mandate, a commission, that we will go and make disciples. Now here's the secret. You ready? Come here. I'll tell you the secret. If you're in Christ, if you're in Jesus, and that is not your mandate, if that is not your priority, you will be miserable. You will have no joy. Nothing sadder, nothing is, nothing is absent of joy more than a follower of Christ who's been made a new creature, the Spirit of God indwells him or her, and they live for themselves. They're miserable. They're miserable. At least the world has things to, to medicate themselves, to forget the turmoil in their soul. But the believer, the, the, the one who's redeemed, who has a spirit, who lives absent of what God calls us to, you're miserable. You have no joy. You dread getting up in the morning. You say, what am I doing? I'm miserable. I don't have any kind of passion in my life. I'm pursuing all these things and they're empty and it's nothing. And you see somebody else and you're honestly a little bit envious of them. And you say, I'd like to have that kind of passion, but it just didn't work for me. It just didn't work for me. You're deceived. You're deceived. You're double-minded. You have two masters. Jesus says, come, follow me. I will be your master. Open up your Bible with me. We're going to be a couple of different places today, but I want to start in John chapter 3. Now, next week, we'll get back to the book of Ephesians. Okay, looking forward to that. We'll be back in Ephesians chapter 3 next week. We've taken a little bit of a sort of a break here from where we were at. Um, Brock, last week, Pastor Brock threw up four chairs for us, and I'll say a word about those. If you remember, he challenged us with the idea that, that we're sitting in one of four chairs, okay? The chair, chair on the right, that's the unbeliever. That's the dead man. We're all born dead. And there's a major gap from the first chair to the second chair when a person puts their trust in Christ and they're now redeemed and a new creature. And Brock said, we move then to a whole new chair. But in reality, we're an infant. He talked about being an infant. And an infant has to know who they are and how to feed themselves and how to clean themselves. They've got just some basic things they need to learn to follow Jesus. And then they move, they, they kind of mature and they become a, a teenager or an adolescent. And they can do a lot of things, but honestly, they're a little self-focused, a little focused on themselves. But then the last chair was the, that of an adult. An adult is somebody who they reproduce. They reproduce. The way Jesus said it is, they make disciples. They make disciples. So here's what I want to do for the remainder of our time. I want to take a look at one guy in the Bible. His name is John. John the baptizer, okay? 
And I want us to see um, how did this discipleship concept really motivate John? And what was the heart of him? And then we're going we're to use him as an example of how God's spirit can work in us. All right? So let's read, first of all, in John chapter 3, verse 25. Actually, I'm going to go up a little ahead of that just to catch the whole story. Verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptized in Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. So we have this John the Baptist here. Jesus is baptizing, but verse 25, something happens. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. This is just an expert of the law, and there's a debate going on between John's disciples and this expert. And they came to John the Baptist, and they said to him, Rabbi or teacher, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Did you see what John said? He said, this joy of mine is now complete. Does that characterize you? Are you walking in joy with your relationship with Christ? Or are you pursuing so many other things trying to find it? John here says that he had joy. And I want us to see where that came from. And I want to invite you to it. First of all, let's review who John is. He was more than a baptizer. Okay, let's review who, who John is. First of all, he's not the guy who wrote this book. See, it says John 3, but this is a different John, okay? Usually that's called John the Evangelist. is what people usually call the author of the Gospel of John. And this is John the Baptist, all right? John the Baptist was a cousin of Jesus, a contemporary, about exactly the same age. Remember, he had an amazing birth. His parents were very, very old, and God did a miracle and allowed them to have John. And the cool thing was, when Mary was carrying Jesus, she walked up to Elizabeth, John's mother, and what did John the Baptist do in his mother's womb? Boom, yeah, kicked, right? So John is worshiping Jesus prenatally, okay? I mean, he's in his mother's womb, and he worships Jesus. And God brings him into the world and does a remarkable thing with him. Go back to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We will see this, this character of John coming on the scene. And I want you to know something about him before we go any further. John was an amazing man. Jesus said he was the greatest man born of woman. And he had a huge following. 
You know, the, the movies about Jesus and about the Gospels, they so depict John wrong. They like show John like stumbling out of the desert, you know, hungry because all eating the locust and, you know, give me something to eat. He's got like two guys straggling behind him. It wasn't that way at all. Mark chapter 1 verse 5 says that John was out preaching and all of Judea was coming to hear him. And all of Jerusalem. He had an amazing ministry. He was the Billy Graham of that day. He had just the multitudes of people coming to hear his message of repentance because the Christ is coming. The legacy of John is incredible. Let me just show you this in your Bible. I want you to realize the ministry that this man had. His legacy was just amazing. I mean, you can go even to Jesus, into Jesus' day, okay? If you want to turn, you can go to Mark chapter 8, verse 27 is where I'm going to be. And that's where Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? This is after John's death, okay? And they asked, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And you know what the disciples guessed or shared with him? They said, some people say, you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. That's the view of John the Baptist. Herod himself in Matthew chapter 14 is afraid of Jesus because he's, he's, uh, he's afraid that maybe he's John the Baptist come back to life. It's amazing the ministry that John the Baptist had. Jesus himself, when he's, when he's there right before he's crucified, he's in a showdown with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, okay? And he asks him a question that pins him against the wall. They say to Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? And Jesus now, knowing the, knowing the, the legacy of John the Baptist, says, I'll tell you what, I'll answer your question if you answer mine. And they're like, okay, let's have it. Bring it. They want, they want a question from the law, you know. They want, quote, Deuteronomy 22.3, and they could do it, right? That's what they want. But Jesus says, John the Baptist, sin of God or sin of man? And they are silenced. John the Baptist had an amazing ministry. It doesn't end there. I mean, just, just, I, I spent a lot of time on this, so I'll bore you with it, okay? In Acts chapter 11, verses 15 to 18, Peter draws upon John the Baptist, speaks of John the Baptist preaching. In Acts chapter 13, Paul pulls John the Baptist. In Acts chapter 18, I'm sorry, 13. In Acts chapter 18, now listen to this one. There's a teacher named Apollos, okay? And he is from Alexandria, Egypt. That's going to be important in just a minute. He finds himself in modern-day Turkey. And two people come alongside, and they interact with him, and they figure out, you know what? All this guy knows is John the Baptist's teaching. And so they instruct him properly about Jesus. And so look what just happened. John the Baptist, this dude living out in the desert, eating locusts and wild honey, you know, wrapped in camel's hair and a leather belt, according to all the movies, stumbling out of the woods, starving to death, thirsting to death. He is known from Alexandria, Egypt, all the way up through the Middle East, all the way out to Ephesus. This morning I went on my iPhone, Google Maps. I looked up Alexandria, Egypt. Directions to Ephesus ruins. It gave me directions. Is that not amazing? 
It takes 36 hours to drive there today. Wow. From Alexandria to Ephesus. That's the ministry of John the Baptist. And Acts 19 is 25 years after his death. This guy had an amazing ministry. God used him incredibly. It's going to make John 3 very, very different. Go back to it again. Let's see what the heartbeat of a disciple maker really is. John chapter 3. Now a discussion arose, verse number 25. A discussion arises between some of John's disciples. See, he had disciples. Let me tell you two of their names. John and James. Hmm. Some of John's disciples left him to follow Jesus. Wow. It's thought that Peter was very likely a disciple of John the Baptist. So this dispute arises between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. You see this, this like, you know, this whole debate is going on about purification. Do you know what that means? That means how do we wash bowls? It's an argument over how do we do the dishes? Okay, that's the issue here that's, that's among them. The ceremonial washing of dishes used there in a the temple worship. A big deal, but I'm not going to dispute over that. Are you? But they did. But look where it goes. Look where it goes. And they came to John and they said to him, now I would think it would be, what's the right way to wash the dishes? But that's not what they said. They didn't bring up the issue. See, they revealed heart. Our hearts betray us. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our hearts betray us. And you can see a man's heart by his life. You can see a man's heart by his spending. You can see a man's heart by the way he speaks to his wife and his children. You can see a man's heart by how he spends his time. And their heart is revealed. Their heart is revealed here. Do you see what it is? Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, a.k.a. Jesus, Jesus, Look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Oh, wow. You see what's happening? Competition. There's a challenge. There's a challenge. They're, they're going over there. They're following them, our movement. It's, it's lacking. But see what the heartbeat of John is. And oh, this needs to be our heart. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness. You know what I said, in other words. I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. You see, the heartbeat of a true disciple maker, it's not comparison. It's not competition. It's Jesus and people growing towards him, people moving towards him are the only thing that will bring you joy. That's it. That's it. Little secret for you. You're not what you used to be. You're a new creature. Behold, 
The old, gone. Everything is new. Now, there's some things about that we like. We like the fact that that means my sin is forgiven. We like the fact that that means I'm going to go to heaven. We like the fact that that means I can know God personally. But listen, that's not all that it means. You're a new creature. So things of this earth will not satisfy. Things that are offered here will not complete you. Don't be surprised at your neighbors. Don't be shocked at your coworkers. Don't be discouraged by other people who seem to be running after the world and finding it. Of course they are. A dog knows nothing but to bark. Of course they're running after those things. Don't let them distract you. Don't let them discourage you. Don't let them cast your eyes away. You are a new creature. You breathe new air. you're, You're driven by a new force now. You know, the fish, you take it out of the water, throw it on the bank, it struggles, right? Likewise, put you in the water for long enough, you struggle. John is showing here what drove him, what his desire was to point to Jesus, to point to Christ, to point to him. I want to pull up Brock's image from last week. Put that up on the screen. Let me say a couple words about this because it was really excellent for us. Okay, now we need to understand that once we get out of that spiritually dead seat and move into those that are alive, we're a brand new creature. All things are new. New heart, new spirit, new man, new woman. And the only thing that will bring you any kind of joy, like John the Baptist had, is you calling all other people to Christ. The spiritual infant is crying out to the dead people. I was dead, now I'm alive. I couldn't see, and now I can. That's what the infant is crying out. I don't know all the stuff about Jesus. All I know is that he saved me. They came to that dude. Who'd been, who'd been healed of his blindness. And they said, who did this and how did they do it? He said, I don't know. All I know is Jesus did it. That's all I know. That's what you and I need to do. That's what the infant does. Points to Jesus. Now the adolescent, okay, or the teenager, they've grown up a little bit. They're following Jesus. They know how to read God's word. They, they know how to feed themselves. They know how to clean themselves when they've, when they've sinned. They know how to talk to God. They know how to talk to other people about Christ. They know what it means to walk as Jesus walked. But you know where they struggle? That dirty, rotten self, man. That self keeps raising its ugly head. I just keep on stomping it down like that stupid mole game. You know, it keeps rising its head. And self says, live for you. Live for you. Live for you and yours. Give to you and yours. But that adolescent, what's he doing? Or what's she doing? She has joy. She's reaching out. He's reaching out to those other chairs. She's calling out to the dead. I don't know everything, 
but I know Jesus. She's calling out to the infant. Come, I will teach you how to feed yourself. I will teach you how to walk with Christ. I will teach you how to talk. You see what's happening? No matter what seat you're in, you got to point to Christ. you got to invest your life into growing other people. Otherwise, you're miserable. That's why. That's why. You do not lack joy because you're sick. You do not lack joy because you're poor. You don't lack joy because you're ugly. Sorry, that's pretty bad, but that's not why, okay? You don't lack joy because you don't have what they have. You don't lack joy because you don't have the opportunities that somebody else has. Garbage, 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 world, 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 flush it. You don't have joy as a new creature when you're stingy with what you got. And you're not investing that into other people. Some of you have been infants a long time. A long time. Some of you have been adolescents for a long time. And you're bored, aren't you? You're bored. That little voice cries out to you and says, there's got to be more. There's got to be more. That little voice haunts you at night and it says, you know, there's more to life than what you're living Listen, that voice is right. It is. But it's not trucks and homes and cars. It's not places and and experiences and wonderful things that you do. It's not that. It's investing your life like John did and pointing to Jesus and growing people in him. Let's go back to our John passage. Go back to our John passage. So not only does this really reveal the desire of a disciple maker, John the Baptist shows us that. I also want you to see the comfort, the comfort, okay? That's in verse number 27. So now John is answering them, and he says, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. I tell you, it's a pretty cool honor I have to stand up front at a wedding. It's a pretty neat thing I get to do occasionally. And nearly every time, nearly every time, there's tears all over the place up there. You know, you expect the father of the bride to cry. Okay, I did that too. All right, it just happens, right? You expect the bride, okay, she's going to, you know, have a little bit of running makeup. She's going to cry. You expect the groom, some of them. If you didn't, that doesn't mean you don't love your wife. You know, it kind of depends upon your temperament, but, but they will. But let me tell you one that surprises you. You don't know unless you're in the, like, you know, the, the inner seat. Here's a secret. You want to know what it is? Often, the best man. It's really something. Often, the best man. When she comes down that aisle and she starts walking down that aisle and the best man is there, you know, the brother or a friend or whatever, it's so awesome because I look at him 
he looks at the groom and he starts. You see him kind of starting to be moved. Why? Why? I'll tell you why. I'll tell you a mystery. Marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. John uses the same thing here. There's something beautiful about this moment. We're hardwired. It's in our DNA to be moved by this. Even the most callous person you ever find, stick them at a wedding and they start, <laughs> they start moving in their heart. God has hardwired us this way. And John uses that example. It's his comfort. You realize what's happening, right? John has been the man on the scene. It's interesting to look, to read through chronologically what happened in the life of Jesus and the life of John. Everywhere John went, Jesus came after. John's baptizing at the Jordan. Jesus comes, gets baptized at the Jordan. John leaves. Wow. And then Jesus does what? Stays at the Jordan and baptizes. And then John, you know what John does? John goes to Samaria. He baptizes in Samaria. And then John 4, guess who comes to Samaria? Jesus meets a Samaritan woman. So John says, okay, I'm out of here. I'm going up to Galilee. He goes to Galilee, preaches repentance. Guess who comes to town? Jesus. But John was filled with joy because he had the comfort to know what his part is in God's plan. He said, I'm just a bridegroom. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I'm just here next to the bride. I, I'm, not, I'm not the one. I'm not the one. I'm rejoicing because the bride is coming to the bridegroom. That's the comfort that we have, folks. That's it. God is using me. This is the comfort where that's offered to us. When God is using you and using me to point people to him, it comforts us. When people reject us, because they will. Was John rejected? Yeah, to his death, he was rejected. Arrested by Herod Antipas, placed in jail, beheaded. But yet he had joy. You know why you don't have joy? You know why? You know why you don't have that comfort? It could be that your heart is off. We get to the last point here. This last, this last piece. I've been alluding to it the whole time. The friend of the bridegroom stands and hears and rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Oh, here he comes. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So that's the call, folks. The, the joy of that disciple-making is this, that I live my life in a way that what I am, now hear this, this is, this is you will not believe how counterculture what I'm getting ready to say is. If this doesn't strike you as completely the opposite of everything everybody else is saying, then you don't have ears to hear. The path to joy is everything that the world says I have to increase to find joy. Compared to Christ and his supremacy and his work in other people's lives mean nothing 
I, I'll, I'll give them up. They don't mean anything. If I have them, that's fine, but I don't need them. I don't need them. My life is about the supremacy of Christ. My life is about calling other chairs to the supremacy of Christ. My life is about all the things that I am about, myself, my desires, my, my ambitions, they decrease. They're not important. That doesn't mean, by the way, you have to fail or have to sell everything you have. I'm not saying that. But they don't mean anything, not compared to the supremacy of Christ. Jesus said it this way. The kingdom of God is like this pearl, and it's in a field. And a man figures out it's in the field. Hmm. So what's he do? He sells everything he has for joy, with joy. He sells everything he has with joy and buys the field for the pearl. That's the kingdom of God. We want the pearl. We want the pearl. But the man didn't buy the pearl. The man bought the field. And the field is investing our life into what Jesus called us to. Go. Go. Make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you. This is what Jesus calls us to. And it's the only place that we will find complete joy. Now, I suspect that I would have a few minutes right now. So let me just throw a couple little extra things up on the screen. Okay, I got three minutes, so just relax. Okay? All right, the first one. The first one. Ba-ding. Okay. Little, just a little bit extra here. Don't give up. Don't give up. Try again. Try again. Disciple making, investing your life in other people is characterized often by failure. I'm sorry, it's just a reality. Okay, I wish it wasn't that way. It won't be in heaven, but on earth it is. Try again. Go ahead and try again. Reach out to somebody again. Do not give up. Don't grow weary in doing what God has called you to do. Because in due season, you'll reap. When it's time, you'll reap. So go ahead and share the gospel again. Go ahead and try with your children again. Go ahead and try with your wife again. Go ahead and try with, that, with another believer. God has prodded you in your heart. Last week you were prodded to disciple somebody. And this week you talked yourself out of it. Uh-uh. No. You'll go do it. Go ahead. You say, I don't have anything to offer. I don't have anything to offer. What am I supposed to do? I don't know everything. Great question. Check out this verse. Here's what you present, okay? You come to them communicating nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. You know about that? You know about Jesus and him crucified? Take him to people, believers and unbelievers, infants, adolescents, adults, Christ and him crucified. You say, how do you know it's going to give me joy, Lo? How do you know? That's a great question. Here's a good verse for you. 
Look what Paul said. What is our hope? What is our joy? What is our crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? He says. You know, this is what this is telling us is on that deathbed, you know that old cliche? You know, on that deathbed, and people don't say, I should have worked more. I should have waxed my car more. I should have made my lawn nicer. You know, that whole cliche. You never say that. That's true. Here's what you do say. I should have invested my life into other people. You definitely say that. You do. As you lay on your deathbed. You do. Those questions come to your heart. So, here's the call. And that's this. What you've heard from me, Paul writes, in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men who will also be able to teach others. This is God's call for you. No matter what seat you're in, no matter what seat you're in, maybe you're a baby, call out to the dead. Maybe you're an adolescent, call out to the dead. And help the babies to grow. Maybe you're an adult. Call out to the dead. Raise up those babies. Challenge those adolescents. Invest your life. You'll find joy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord. God, we're so selfish. But your spirit, Lord, changes us. So you corrected me even now. We were so selfish, Lord. That's not our nature anymore. Father, I pray that we would invest, Lord, love enough to give and to put our life on the line that others may grow in you. Give us wisdom, Lord. Some of us don't really know how to respond, but we got a heart to respond. We, we want to do something. It's kind of like that man that said, Lord, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. Lord, we want to move. Help us with how we don't know how to move, God. So move in anybody's heart that wants to work. Lord, and then for the one who's been discouraged by this in the past, there are many, Lord. Comfort them like you did John. No one, no one comes to the Father unless you draw them. And no one has anything unless the Father has given it to them, Lord. So I pray for the discouraged one, for the defeated one, that they'll stand up, dust themselves off, and get back in the game. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. It is sufficient. In Jesus' name, amen.